So let me pray and then explore this idea of the heart preparing Christ's room. Shall I pray? Yes? Yes or no? Let me pray. Father, come into our hearts this afternoon. Open our hearts. Fill us with all joy and peace in believing. Fill us with the love of Jesus Christ, in whose name and by whose spirit we pray. Amen. New York actor and director Woody Allen spoke to the media some 25 years ago after forming a romantic relationship with his then partner, Mia Farrow's adopted daughter. They weren't related by blood, but they began a relationship. The media asked why he did it, and he famously said, the heart, the heart wants what it wants. And in those six words, the heart wants what it wants, you could basically sum up the world's ills. Uber desire, have to have, need, self first, born out of fear, masked as protection. Anglican theologian Ashley Hull said this on the Book of Common Prayer. He said, according to Cramner's anthropology, his view of what it means to be human, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and then the mind justifies. How true is that? The mind, he says, doesn't direct the will. The mind is actually captive to what the will wants, and the will itself, in turn, is captive to what the heart wants. Wow, who would have thought that Cramner and Woody Allen would agree? But with different ideas in mind. And yet the promise of Scripture is that God has a revolution afoot, at hand. And his coup d'etat is against all that is wrong and selfish in the world. And his coup d'etat begins with the very organ that created the problem in the first place, the human heart. So in the kingdom of God, first the human heart is renewed, spilling over with obedience and joy, then communities of people whose hearts have been transformed, families and churches shining as a light, and then at Christ's appearing, the world, which by the way, not the way many people choose, it's not government, then communities, then the human heart, but human heart, communities, and then the world. Jesus called his revolution the kingdom of God. God, king of hearts, first. God promised to the ancient people of Israel and to those who call on him a new heart first, a new spirit. It comes out in a promise in Ezekiel 36 where God says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh, a human heart. So this afternoon, a simple reflection on the human heart. Our Advent and Christmas series is a meditation on one line from Isaac Watts's carol, Joy to the World, and the one line is, let every heart prepare him room. In the end, it's a reflection on Jesus Christ, who's the hymn in Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room, 
But still, we're reflecting on what he means for my heart and every heart. What it means to let or allow Christ room. And more, how would you prepare him room? That's next week. How do you get ready for him to do his thing in your heart? Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World in 1719, 200 years ago next year. There you go. The carol, of course, goes like this. You know it. We sang it. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. That's what you do when it's grace, not, grace, not works. You receive the king. Let every, let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. We explode with joy. So on each Sunday in December, we're unpacking each word in the phrase, let every heart prepare him room. Why? The series this way, well, each one of those words is packed with meaning. What does it mean to let Christ do anything? Why every heart and not just some hearts, that was last week. Today, why the heart and not, for example, the head or just behaviour? Christmas Eve and Christmas Day will be a meditation on why him and not anybody else. It's a simple series for a busy season. I hope God speaks to you through it. The series assumes four things. Number one that Jesus is presently alive. The one who died for my sin, rose again to give me hope. Secondly, that that same Christ is active in hearts by his spirit, that there is an internal renewal that's genuinely possible. Third, that you have some agency to allow him to do his thing as you trust him. And fourthly, and perhaps ominously, that you could block him in some form. You could reject the invitation, as Jesus himself said. Isaac Watts wrote that particular line. I imagine that he had in mind the birth narratives of Jesus. Luke 2, Jesus was born, put in a manger, a feed trough, because there was no guest room available for them. Most likely they got to Bethlehem. They probably stayed with relatives of the house of David, but the house is filled Bed, 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 bed. The guest room wasn't free, so they went out the back and downstairs to where the animals are fed. We read, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Don't you love the sparse and beautiful detail? It's a fact, by the way. It's not a theological point. We do not get told how they felt about this or the census or even childbirth. We can presume some things. But there's no sense here by Luke that we need to connect this no room idea with our lives. It was the poets and the hymn writers who made that connection. But we don't need it. The Apostle Peter makes it for us when he says, in your hearts set apart Christ as Messiah. Do something in your heart. Nevertheless, it's interesting that even at Jesus' birth, there was no room for him like there isn't any room for him in Australia. And I presume there are people in the church today for whom there's no real room for Christ. Isaac Watts used this idea and flipped it as a personal challenge. Let every heart prepare him room. 
So three simple questions on this idea. Number one, is the heart important, yes or no? Secondly, why is the heart important? And thirdly, what, do you want, what are you going to do about it if you decide that the heart is important? Is the heart important? Why is it important? And what to do about it? Firstly, is the heart important? Yes. <laughs> yes. You know it already. Because you felt it when somebody has put their foot on your heart. And the Bible says it. Jesus says, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, not just a part of it. In Proverbs it says, Above all else, there's a priority, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it, from the desires and the fears and the dreams and the hopes. So guard your heart. And this in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It's not trust your heart, it's trust in the Lord with all your heart. There's the Bible versus Disney. Or 1 Samuel 16, on choosing little David as king, a shepherd, we read, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at, People look at the outward appearance. Don't we know it's true? But the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus identified where human actions and thirst come from. Luke 6.45, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He did a, a, then identified the problem as the heart and nothing else. In Mark 7, Jesus says, it's not about the food you eat. It's not about the religious observance that God is looking at. For, says Jesus, from within out of a person's heart. That's where the evil thoughts come from and the sexual immorality and the theft and the murder. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says that marriages end because, he says, very simply, your hearts were hard. Now, how true is that? Most marriages end because one or both hearts went hard to either God or to the other person or to family. And how we feel it. In the Jewish scriptures, Pharaoh is the sinner par excellence, the one who opposed God, his word, and his messenger. Throughout Exodus, we find out that Pharaoh hardened his, his heart to the Lord. And what that means is that the world's problems aren't primarily, for example, bad government solved through collective politics. The world's problems aren't primarily lack of education or health care. It's not even inequality. It goes deeper than that. And I say that knowing how important all those things are. They really are important. Martin Luther King Jr. said, it, led, it may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. There is a place for legislation. Legislation restrains people's hearts to some degree. But you and I, we need better than that. We need to go deeper. We need to go to the root of it all, to what the Bible calls sin, which is another way of saying stubbornness to God and to others. And stubbornness resides in the heart, in the human heart, or otherwise known as a hard heart or a calloused heart or a 
closed heart or a little heart with little room in it for anybody else, a heart that is curved in on self, yielding in the end to my uber desire, my uber fears and self. Souls in Itzen famously said the problem is not other people. The barbarians are not at the gates. The barbarians were in our own hearts. Evil cuts through every human heart. It's interesting, don't you think, that a body part represents something? <laughs> it's just a body part. Your heart, your very self, your head might be your mind, your thinking, the things you tell your heart, which is why it's mental health. Your feet might represent standing firm or a journey like walking. And your guts might represent a will or a drive or a determination. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, there are people whose hearts are so curved in on just having more and more and more. He says their God is their stomach. There are doctors in the room here today. I could ask you to raise your hand, but I'm in a medical doctors, by the way. There's a few PhDs as well, but don't raise your hands for a moment if you're a doctor. But a doctor will tell you that the heart is an organ which pumps blood. By the way, I didn't check that. I'm pretty sure that's true. It's a pump, for goodness sake. That's what it is. Begs the question, by the way, does God have a heart? Does God have a heart? Of course God has a heart, not a mere pump like us mere mortals. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. I'm not saying he has blood pumping, but he has a heart. We humans know something about our pumps. We know that they give life, distributing blood, what is important to the whole body. We know that this thing called a heart, when it stops, is one of the primary ways that we know that a person's life has ended. So we know it's important. You can chop off a finger, but if you rip out my heart, you know, my life ends. I'll survive a finger loss. Please don't try it on me afterwards. The forward to C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, goes like this. Gets to the heart of it. You see what I did there? The great religious struggle is not fought on a spectacular battleground, but within the ordinary human heart, when every morning we awake and feel the pressure of the day crowding in on us, and we must decide right there and then what sort of humans we wish to be. Is the heart important? Yes, it is. Secondly, why is it important? The answer is because the heart is the starting place for the kingdom of God. If the problem is hard hearts towards God, the solution then is a soft one. If the problem is a closed heart towards God, the solution is an open one. If the solution is a dead heart, towards God, the solution is a new one, a resurrected one. You see why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. In Isaiah 35, read a few moments ago, God promises that he will come, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come, he'll come to save, and when he comes, he'll open blind eyes, open deaf ears, and he'll give new hearts. In Ezekiel 36, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. 
ripping out your heart of stone, good, putting in there heart transplant, heart of flesh. And he came, that's what Christmas is all about, God opened wide his heart so that you could open up yours to him. That's what Christmas is all about. God coming, God with us, God saving us. But how did he do it? Not by crashing government, not by a sensational ad campaign, but here it is. Here's how he came. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Who knew the world was personal? It's not the time came for the program to be born. Time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them. Philip Brooks in A Little Town of Bethlehem, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. You see that? She gave birth to a child and placed him in a manger. How silently the wondrous gift is given. There's a lovely idea that's painted in 2 Corinthians 6. Paul speaks to the church in Corinth and he says, I've loved you, we've opened, heart our, we've opened our hearts wide to you, we're not withholding our affection from you, we came to you, we opened our hearts to you, but he says, you're withholding your heart from us. As a fair exchange, and I speak to you as children with affection, open, heart, open wide your hearts to us. It's a lovely little exchange between Paul and the church, but you can see how it could be molded to the incarnation. God to you, I've opened wide my heart to you, says God. I'm not withholding my affection from you. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children, says God could say to you and me. Open wide your hearts also. Don't be closed. Now, how does this happen? How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. In other words, the same way he came the first time, he comes to human hearts now. In the same way, God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. And he might, I don't know this, he might be coming into human hearts now. Even as you open your heart to him, considering perhaps for the first time that he has opened wide his heart to you. You see, no ear may hear his coming. Did you hear anything? No ear may hear his coming, yet in this world of sin, where meek hearts will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Or how about the hymn, Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. Amen? Paul says that's what God did to the world in Genesis 1. He said, let there be light. And he does the same thing now, silently. How silently? In human hearts. That's when he says, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Jesus Christ as the Messiah. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. I've had that experience. Thirdly then, what to do about it. A 50-year-old businessman came to church a number of years ago on Christmas Eve for the first time in 30 years, and he said to me, I've been following my inner moral compass for my whole adult life, but now it's time to find true north. What a beautiful line. That is, he's been a moral guy, very ethical, but it's been his moral compass, really, and it doesn't align, no compass aligns to true north, and it's time, he said, to align his heart to true north. So I've got some ways to do it. Number one, be ready, be open. (laughs) John the Baptist's job was to get people's hearts ready for the coming of the Messiah. And his father said, before John was born, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn what? To turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You see that? Be ready. Second, therefore, let people speak into your heart like John the Baptist did then to the people. Be open to the word or the rebuke of others. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5, it says this, the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters. Right, hard to access. But the one who has insight draws them out. Isn't that what you could do for each other? Speak into each other's lives, looking for the purposes of a person's heart and working out ways in which you can pray and draw out what are the fears, what are the loves, what are the hopes, what are the dreams, and how are they yielding to the kingdom of God? Third, read your Bible again. <laughs> Tim Chester says this, the more we instill the Bible into our heart, mind, soul, bloodstream, the harder we will find it to sin comfortably. The Bible enlivens our conscience and drives us back to God in repentance and a longing to live as it pleases Him. Meditate on on the Bible, read, mark, learn, inwardly digest. And yet we are hearts. We aren't just mere brains on a stick. You know, this is my brain and this is my body. It's not just that you get your head in the right place. You need, in the end, to have, fourthly, your heart open to God and not just mere religious observance. Chesterton said, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. Or the prayer of preparation that we say at communion, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. The prayer is cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Fifth, we need to guard the heart. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. He doesn't mean, by the way, have a guarded heart. No, he means don't let your heart be robbed by sin with little room for God. Don't let sin get a foothold. And therefore, we must in many ways, resist our hearts, to be honest. The heart wants what it wants. is not good. We've swallowed a Hollywood line. Follow your heart. No, please, do not follow your heart. You know, I followed my heart once. It led me down a dark alley. You see, no. 
The perfect prayer for the day is in one of, one of the Cramner prayers from the prayer book. It goes like this. You, God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. You alone can tame and tune my heart. So, says the prayer, grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. You like that? Two prongs? Love what you command. Desire what you promise. God shapes hearts. For what purpose? So that our hearts may surely be there fixed where true joys are to be found. That's the prayer in Jesus Christ. And therefore, a new freedom in him. Amen? A new heart pointed a true north, the will of God, so that what Paul said in Philippians 4 can be true, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. As the musicians come forward. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us now, abide with us in our hearts, our Lord Emmanuel.